Hi, this is Ace Fraley, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Michael Eckhart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, the pandemic caused an explosion in vinyl demand. Here's why the music industry can't meet it. And from the New York Times, YouTube isn't the music villain anymore. In Variety, now that you've bought a multi-million dollar music catalog, what are you going to do with it? And from Billboard, how SoundScan changed music, driving metal, rap, and alt-rock up the charts. We've got this. We've got more. It's episode number 44, and it rhymes. And this is the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Stand by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee. The weekly music news. For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Did well, good morning, Jay. Accident. I did do that on accident. That I was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. We're nice to see you. I am completely <laughs> unshowered. You. I've been up for mere minutes. You've been up for hours. I know. It's all right. It's Have you had any right. coffee yet? I don't drink coffee. You always oh, that's right. That's I do right. not drink coffee. I'm not a coffee guy because I need coffee every day, which is why I don't drink coffee because I already have like the sugar addiction and the chocolate thing. And it's like, I don't need another vice. Jay. No judgment. <laughs> okay. None then none, then none given. Well, before we get started, let's, uh, how about if we thank our wonderful sponsors? Yeah. Let's uh, start off with HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, Bands in Town. Over 55 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 530,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Big thanks to Bands in Town. Hypebot. Yes, we really, really, really dig them and appreciate yes, it. Yes, sir. So, and by the way, the man that I speak to every week, actually I speak to him more than once a week, uh, he is Jay Gilbert. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which is weekly music news for the new music business and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music, and Fox Home Entertainment. 
And Mike is my brother from another mother, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music. Woohoo! Yes. And I, we, I had many jobs. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I was at Universal for over 18 years. And when you're at a company that long, you don't work one job. You know, like for the first four years, I did yeah. one thing. And then the next right. five years, I did another thing. And, you know, it's... I don't think people do that a lot anymore. Stay at companies that long. That's a stunning amount of time. Even if, even an hour day. Yeah. I, I, the, I was at Universal for eight years and I was at Warner Music, but different divisions within Warner Music for eight years. Um, and that's, even that's a fairly long time. Yeah. So, yeah. but I bounced around within the same kind of, you know, umbrella but yeah. yeah it's it's hard to stay with companies <laughs> it's, it is in the entertainment business it is it is it, i don't it know really volatile is the right word it's not the wrong word probably <laughs> yeah it's, it's a challenge well, it well especially in the new music business things are evolving and changing uh, so much you know before we get into this i wanted to mention kind of an honorable mention um, we're not going to cover this piece, but the first story in your morning coffee newsletter this last week was Billboard's 2021 Indie Power Players. And I love these Power Players uh, articles that they write. And I'm just going to read you the, the blurb from your morning coffee. These are the executives to watch at labels, distributors, and associations who have weathered the pandemic and ignited the success of artists on the charts unconstrained by the major label system. I highly recommend you know that you read this piece. It's not really something that you and I can really go through and comment on. It's really just kind of a list of these people, where they work, and they gave a, they give a little bit of insights into the business today. Yeah, I saw. I haven't, I haven't actually dug into it yet. I, I saw. I, I got to come back to that. But, it's you know, it's a big piece. I mean, you, you'll yeah. need uh, some time. Some time. Set aside some <laughs> to time. Get, to get through it. Absolutely. So be, before we jump in, um, I had a friend of mine call me this week and say um, they were doing a podcast and asked for a little bit of advice. And as you know, it's you make it up as you go and you find out what equipment works and what doesn't work. And hopefully my mic sounds better today because other mics that I've used pick up this big room that I'm in uh, today. But uh, one of the questions he asked me, which I thought was interesting is, um, you know, what, what are your top podcast. What are the ones that you like to listen to? Uh -huh. And I had to think about it for a minute. And I looked at my phone and looked at the ones that I, you know, I go for a long walk every morning. And so I, I looked at those and I wanted to see if you had, uh, if you listen to any of these and maybe we can talk about, you know, some of them. So here's my top 10 in no particular order, by the way. Okay. Um, because, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm constantly dropping some off and listening to new ones. Um, Anyway, so uh, Music Tectonics, mm -hmm. um, which is Dimitri Vitsa and his company, Rock, Paper, Scissors, they do um, the Music Tectonics Conference, but they also have a really cool podcast. I highly recommend that. Uh, Water and Music um, by mm -hmm. Sherry Hu is yeah. super insightful. Uh, music Business Worldwide, um, uh, which you and I talk about a lot of their stories, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Chart Metric which is uh, a service that I, a platform I use. <clears throat> I know those people, they're good people. It's a great service if you haven't used Chartmetric, but they also have a really cool podcast and they dig into kind of the data, which is really fun for geeks like me. And you're uh, a data geek without a doubt. Yes, I am. Yes. Uh, 
unabashedly. Say it loud, um, say it proud. Yes. Creative Innovations Podcast. That's uh, Gigi Johnson from uh-huh. UCLA. Sure, yeah. Uh, a dear friend, and um, I just dig everything that she does, and she does a lot. Um, the podcast called New Music Business by Ari Herstand is really insightful because Ari is a guy, he's written a really great book that you can find on the new music business. Um, he's done it. He's played the shows. He's done the interviews. He's, you know, he's done all this stuff. So he can kind of tell you what works, what doesn't work, what's important. So I highly recommend that one. Um, there's one that I listened to by, um, Mike Warner called Streamline and Mike Warner works at Chartmetric, but he's also written a book called uh, Work Hard, Playlist Hard. And the first time I heard that title, I thought, oh, this is probably a scam. You know, I mean, everybody's writing this stuff on playlists and trying to game the system. And and I, I bought the book and read it and I was blown away. It was so good. It's like a lot of the things that you and I talk about every week and a lot of things we tell people. So... Uh, Mike and I have become friends, you know, um, I really dig what he does. So that's streamline uh, a couple more inner circle by Bobby Osinski. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Bobby. Absolutely. Yeah. Great work. Uh, great work. Oh my gosh. If you're into recording engineering or even just learning about the new music business, he interviews, uh, everybody I've been yeah. on his podcast. I, I just dig him because he's written a bunch of books on the music business, on engineering, producing and everything. He is just phenomenal. So inner circle, um, the last couple, um, this one has a super long title. The title of the podcast by Emily white is how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. That's there the name go. of the podcast. Emily it says it right there. It says I need right an app. There. Come on, <laughs> but it's a good podcast. Um, yeah, Emily's caffeinated, but but she well, she has some really great people on there. Send me your list, and we'll put it in the show notes because okay. if people are listening as they're, they're driving, and it's funny, you know, I don't know about you, but well, you have that walk, and my podcast listening was typically in the car, and my drive is so short now. I'm way behind on my podcasts, yeah. and and it's, but it's I don't know about you, but I, I and as you mentioned those. I don't know how you have the time to listen to all those because, yeah, uh, you know, between documentaries, TV shows, movies, listening, writing music, trying to play music, trying to become a better musician. Uh, how many hours not, in a day, right? I, I, right? Well, you hit it. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I started doing this five mile walk every morning, mm-hmm. and that gives me time to listen to pretty much two episodes each walk, give right. or take. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, and I don't listen to every episode, you know, like sometimes I'll listen to the Bob left sets podcast. Like mm-hmm. he had Donald Passman on and that was really great. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't listen to every single episode from all of these. I kind of pick and choose which ones that the subject, you know, I'm interested in the yeah. last one that I'll mention, then we'll get on with the show here is the media podcast. If you don't know what media is, it's M I D I a, uh, Google it. Um, my buddy Keith Jopling works over there. He's the guy that does those playlists, the song sommelier. Yep. Oh yeah. Um, but media Mark Mulligan and the team over there. Wow. They do so there's, there's an article in, in this week's uh, morning coffee from media, but they're like the industry leaders when it comes to looking at the research and, and yeah. looking at trends. Oh, we've talked about them a lot. Yeah. Uh, by the way, yeah. before we get started, speaking of 
documentaries. I said oh. documentaries for a second. We, you and I just just talked about it for a second. If you have Apple Plus, there is a eight part series called 1971, the year that changed music forever. I think is the full title. 1971 is the part you need to know. The the, the subtitle. I, I can't. I don't think I got that exactly right. But something like that. And uh, I'm three in. Um, what do you wow, think? Wow, it's a wonderful, it's a deep dive. And there's a lot of stuff in there that, a lot of fo- footage and things that I have never seen before. Um, and I, it, the person who told me about it was a good buddy of mine, Ricky Mintz, who worked at Capitol when they did the Beatles um, uh, anthology series. Oh, wow. And so for that, they were pulling all of the um, material together, all the video material or film material they had. And he mentioned he, there's a couple of things, there's some, some scenes in there with Phil Spector producing John Lennon. And uh, my friend Ricky said he'd never seen that. So um, there's some stuff in there that was really, really well done. It's a great documentary. So highly recommend it if you, uh, if is you it, have Apple Plus. Is it centered on music or is it just everything that happened in that S- both, year? Both. Very much on the social aspects of what was going on in society in general and how that was impacting music and the artists that were really breaking in, during those times. And so and what's it called? 1971? 1971. Uh, the, the year that changed music forever. Wow. Something like that. Like that yeah but the, I, it's really really well done and and, uh, and i will tell our listeners that you have never steered me wrong <laughs> you know <laughs> right. like i've watched i love music documentaries and i think me i've too. mentioned this before i'll watch a documentary on a band that i don't necessarily even love just nope. because i love seeing how the sausage is made yep. and you have turned me on to so many good ones so if you're listening to this program take mike's advice 1971. There you go. All right, Jay, let's jump into this. From Billboard, the first article we're going to talk about is the pandemic caused an explosion in vinyl demand. Here's why the music industry can't meet it. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, I was blown away. Me too. (laughs) By the numbers in this. Yes. Its sales are on track to hit a billion dollars this year in sales, which is mm-hmm. is unbelievably crazy. But the number that uh, let me see, let me find it here. This one, uh, this one blew me away. And it's a it, it is a stunning appraisal. Twenty years ago, vinyl albums were selling just over a million copies a year. But if manufacturers were able to meet today's demand, that's to meet the demand, mm-hmm. vinyl a- album sales would be set to surpass their all-time U.S. peak of 334 million LPs in 1978, according to the RIAA. Adjusted for inflation, the 1978 figure uh, amounted to $9.8 billion in sales. If demand could be met today, sales could top $2 billion. Wow. And that is unbelievable. Um, but it but can't they, be met, and we're going right. to talk about why in a second. But I had no idea that it was that big. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's stunning. Um, as they mentioned in the article, in periods of low demand, vinyl albums take two to three months to produce and get into stores. While delays existed pre-pandemic, label sources tell Billboard that a spike in demand that began in July of 2020, coupled with continuing supply shortages, means that vinyl records ordered plate Vinyl record orders placed in early May will be fulfilled in December at the earliest, while some manufacturers are telling clients they'll have to wait until March of 2022 to get their yeah. stuff, their, their, their titles delivered. And I'm I hearing mean, that from my clients, and it's not just the indie clients. 
It's even worse with the majors because they have such a backlog that if you're going to put out a vinyl record, they're saying, you know, not this year, you know, and it's not just the vinyl, you know, they talk about, uh, I think it was Brandon Seavers, the co-founder CEO of, uh, of Memphis records said, you know, even the, the houses that produce album packages like inner sleeves, album jackets, they weren't prepared for the surge in demand too. I will say that this piece is so well written and there's so much information. It was written by Ed Christman. Um, and the photography in here, uh, by Christopher Payne is phenomenal too. Yeah, it really yeah. kind of pulls it all together, but they talk about how music fans during the uh, pandemic, you know, spent their disposable income on turntables and vinyl instead of concert tickets, right? Labels that used to do a couple of thousand copies, you know, on a given title are now doing 5,000 copies and labels that were yeah. doing 5,000 copies are now doing 10,000, you know, uh, big boxes, you know, buying into vinyl, you know, like the targets and Walmarts, you know, that changed the picture in 2020, the average order on a title was 3,700. Now the average order is 7,000 to 8,000. Unbelievable. And so it also mentions the slowdown hasn't affected sales. The vinyl boom generated $626 million in 2020, a 46% increase in sales over 2018 and made it the number one format for albums. In the first four months of 2021, that growth more than doubled to an eye-popping 98.8%, which suggests that vinyl will top a billion dollars in revenue this year. That's crazy. Uh, demand isn't the only thing driving revenue. Since 2011, uh, the average suggested list price for vinyl LPs have, has increased from $21.71 to $27 in 2020. Yeah. So it is a stunning, I mean, if you would have if you would have had Vegas odds on what the resurgence in vinyl was during the CD era uh, you would have been laughed out of the room with yeah. with with predicting something like this yeah and, and as we've reported um, vinyl was out selling CDs and the only reason recently it dipped back below CD numbers is because of the problems with fulfilling. Um, uh, Laura Provenzano uh, from, uh, from Alliance said that they have 37,000 vinyl uh, titles in stock. Um, at this time last year, they had 45,000. So they're, they're having problems with stock and we'll go into this in a second, but as majors especially focus on the hits because that's mm -hmm. where the volume is a lot of the catalog is not being pressed up yeah. and i know from my personal experience because during the pandemic i know we've talked about this a little bit um i started buying some of my favorite albums on vinyl right and just so I had clean, you know, copies of them. And I love how they're pressing them up now, 180 gram and with the original things that they added into the package, you know, whether it's a booklet or uh, other things. And I started looking at, um, I ordered a lot from Music Millennium and from, um, gosh, there's another store and I can't remember. But um, I looked at, there's a website called The Sound of Vinyl, um, mm -hmm. which is owned by Universal. And I noticed that at the beginning of the pandemic, I could find some things that other people didn't have. But then as the pandemic wore on, I went in there the other day and looked up 12 titles and they were out of stock on every single one. I believe it. Well, and this, of course, this is not unique to the vinyl industry or the music industry in terms of vinyl. If you look at the uh, supply chain issues throughout the economy, I mean, 
lumber prices have tripled, uh, steel prices have tripled, and if you're looking, if you've been looking for a new car, you'll see that prices have gone up because there's a giant chip shortage in terms of of the chips. Something like forty to forty five different chips go into a, a typical vehicle, computer chips, by the way. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff going on in the in the economy as a whole. But boy, this is just. I mean, it's when you look at the demand, it is unbelievable. I mean, I just. And when you talk about comparing it to 1978 levels in some cases, I mean, that is certainly that, that is, I mean, that was the golden age of vinyl pressing. And, and you know, and, and there's a lot of voodoo in vinyl manufacturing. There's a lot of, there's so many different things yeah. that can happen and go wrong. It's a complex process. It's a complex process, even though it's an old process. Um it is complex, and there's yeah. a lot of things along the lines that can screw up. And yeah. uh, it's for as I mentioned to you, I think before we started recording, I, I worked for Doug Sachs for a while. Doug Sachs, the late mastering engineer, uh, mm-hmm. and the mastering lab, and he was he he built his reputation on vinyl mastering in the day. And you know, it's it is a dark art, man. It is a dark art <laughs> to make it sound great. And I think, but I also think that the vinyl, the vinyl that is coming out now, is far better than anything that happened, you know, when we were kids. That's it's, right. The quality is way up, and the attention to the quality because it's a premium product now. That was the only or one of the the main. Uh, That's a good point. Products, you know, yeah. but now it is a premium product, and so much more attention to detail is happening with yeah. it. So well, you just mentioned costs. Um, and you're absolutely right. And that's affecting the vinyl business as well. The, the, all of those costs, um, have been increasing. And, um, my friend, Sean Rakowski, um, he runs independent record pressing. And he said that, you know, there's always something squeezing the supply chain, um, Mm -hmm. uh, shipping issues, which we'll talk about in a second, getting color compounds, uh, stampers and printed album covers. He points to those as pain points. And, you know, this, I don't know if we've covered it very much, but there's a company called direct shot that has been under fire, um, because of, uh, shipping issues like fulfillment to, uh, record stores, for example. And all of the majors kind of banded together to use direct shot and, there have been some terrible problems. So some record stores haven't been getting their product. Some of them have been double shipped. Um, Some of it just takes forever, which is, it's just been brutal. And they, they point to that too, as well in the story. Well, and you know, a bunch of stuff has changed. Uh, They mentioned in January, Rainbow Records, which I had been using back in my SST days, uh, one of the industry's largest and oldest vinyl manufacturers closed and sold its pressing machines after losing its lease. They were in Santa Monica. Um, And then a big thing happened. And back in February, uh, there's a company called Apollo Masters. And they were one of only two companies worldwide that produces the lacquer discs essential to the vinyl stamping process, burnt down a three-alarm inferno that required 82 firefighters to extinguish it. Uh, the remaining, there's only one more lacquer producer now, that's MDC in Japan. So they have ramped up their production, but again, when you have these these constraints in the supply chain, it just plays havoc on, on everything. Right, and there's so many complexities. You know, Sean Rakowski um, mentions also in this piece that, you know, making vinyl records is a combination of craft and science, like you just mentioned, you know, which means there's a limited workforce qualified to create stamping plates, you know, from the lacquers. And 
each of which can produce about a thousand pressings before it needs to be replaced. And, you know, press operators are in short supply yep. um, with little time to train new workers. Uh, Sean said it takes longer to make plates, to do test pressings, everything. And, you know, pressing albums on colored vinyl is even more time consuming process, he says, because, quote, if we have 10,000 units on order from a label and they're to be pressed in six different colors, that will definitely impact capacity because every time we change the color, we have to clean the machine and recalibrate it in order to get good uh, sound quality. Right. Wow. And color is a big driver at the moment. They mentioned that back in 2015, it was flat, round, and black. Vinyl itself was the driver. <laughs> now yeah. the driver is color vinyl, mixed color vinyl, and exclusive packaging with bells and whistles, which of course explains uh, the cost going up to about 27 bucks a pop, give yeah. or take, or an average price. So, uh, I, I, but I still, you know, and, and even we got into the business at about the same time. So for me, it was the very late 80s. Um, or, or yeah, the, the late '80s, not the very late '80s, and vinyl was being phased out. You know, CDs were coming in, and everybody was was replacing right. their vinyl with CDs. So while I did touch vinyl a little bit, um, it was just on the way out. I was just it was the, it was the arc of that particular format at the time. See, I and worked a little earlier than you. I was working, well, you and you worked retail too. Yeah, I was working uh, for um, like three or four years for an indie, um, starting in probably gosh, what, 83, like right as, okay. I yeah. remember when the first couple of CDs came in to yeah. the store. Um, and so we were primarily vinyl at that point. And then I worked for Tower Records for almost five years. You know, you were talking about, uh, you know, pricing, or we were talking about how pricing has gone up. I just noticed in this piece that they said the price of vinyl pellets went up 17% yeah. on, on April 1st. And, you know, these rising costs are eating into the already slim margins. Um, Bruce Ogilvie, you know, from Alliance Entertainment, mm -hmm. Super D, uh, he said that vinyl manufacturers make 30 cents to 60 cents per unit. The return on investment is nothing to write home about. Yeah, interesting. Well, and of course, the, uh, those pellets are a, are a, petrol, a petroleum product. And at least here in Southern California, if you've been to the gas tank lately, or the gas pump lately, or a gas station, yes, uh, boy, it's uh, uh, petroleum prices are up, and so of course that's going to affect vinyl manufacturing as well. So. Have you ever? Uh, I'm sure you have. Have you ever been through a pressing plant? I have. Yeah, Isn't there's it? one not far from. There's well, actually it's between you and me. RTI. That's where uh, I went. I got yeah, a tour of Camarillo, RTI, yeah. and what was really amazing is. Just to see how it's like you mentioned earlier, like that steampunk. Yes. You know, they get the little biscuits and they, you know, and they do their thing. And <laughs> that's right. It is just absolutely amazing to watch that process uh, being done. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and again, it, it's, it's, um, you know, when you look at the people that were there at in their career at the time, there's not many people left that were involved in vinyl that are still involved in, in music distribution or music sales or the music industry. And so, you know, every a lot of people kind of had to relearn that process. And I remember when I went to work for Doug Sachs, as he was coming back, he was pulling his lathes out because he was going to, was, this was in the early days, or not the early days, this was about, yeah, maybe six or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I kind of needed a primer to, re like, okay, how is it made again? Or, you know, yeah. give me the steps and remind me because it had been so long that it was something that I, I knew at one point in my early days, but I'd forgotten because it just wasn't, it was knowledge I didn't need anymore. Yeah. But and it now is, it's a thing again. And you know, I got the, uh, I got the Queen box set. 
Mm. So it's all their studio albums. Yeah. And each album is on a different color vinyl. And it's all 180 gram. It is just absolutely stunning. Far better Uh, than it ever sounded on vinyl when it was originally released. Right. I bought those when they came out on vinyl. And how much was the whole set? Um... I have to be honest and tell you that it was a gift. Oh, don't, don't, don't. Okay. <laughs> it was a gift. Yeah. All right. Make sure you you send a Chris a thank you. Oh my gosh! It comes with a, a cool coffee table book. I mean, we could talk for hours on our favorite vinyl, but I will say that there are albums when I was in high school that I would buy, like let's say, you know. Elton John, uh, Captain Fantastic, which came with a couple of booklets, or mm-hmm. Kiss Destroyer, and it came with a pop gun. They're including those things in these reissues. They're not going on the cheap. They are beautiful packages. So um, I just one, one other thing I just want to touch on really quickly here is we talked about how, you know, I can't find these catalog albums yeah, right, right now. You know, I'm searching the indie retail um, you know, yesterday was record store day and, you know, uh, I, I'm able to find some of them just by, you know, going through the bins, but there's a reason for that. Um, it says here that, you know, there, there's been a decade of growth for vinyl, you know, since 2011, it's been fueled by a shift in consumer demographics. Once dominated by old white guys like you and me, vinyl <laughs> buyers are now a diverse group, according to retailers and uh, label executives. So while sales of classic rock have dominated the past you know, decade or so, according to Billboard um, estimates or Billboard estimates of based on figures from MRC data, that's formerly SoundScan, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin respectively sold 3 million and 1 million vinyl albums during that time. But contemporary artists in pop, hip hop, country, you know, for the first 19 weeks of 2021, number one is Harry Styles, you know, which scanned 94,000 copies. That blew my mind. Number two is Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar, um, which again, really, it's a great album, but it really surprised me, you know, 72,000. And then you go, we talked uh, last week about Billie Eilish, you know, that was number three and four uh, for, you know, the, when we fall asleep, where do we all go? And then the 2017 EP. And then the last point I want to make sure I mentioned on these sales is that country music is in demand as well. You know, Chris Stapleton's 2020 album, Starting Over, 67,000 copies so far this year. Uh, that wow. is just mind-blowing. Well, and let's not forget, you know, Target and Walmart got in the game. And they mention in here that the uh, demand for vinyl has revived Walmart's interest in music product. Uh, it's 4,400 and change U.S. stores now carry approximately 300 titles and label sources say have scanned over 50,000 copies of some, pop, of some popular titles. So, Again, one of those things, if you told me 10 years ago that Walmart and Target would be in the vinyl business, I would have laughed you out of the room. How can that possibly be? But yet here we are. And as CD sales have been decreasing, Walmart has been eliminating space, eliminating racks for CDs, getting smaller and smaller. And now all of a sudden they're expanding a little bit and bringing in this larger item, but also uh, more and more titles because they're selling. Yeah. Remarkable. Remarkable. All right. Well, let's move on to the next story from the New York Times. Jay, did you know that YouTube isn't the music villain anymore? (laughs) 
Wow. We've talked so much about YouTube. You know, this, this article by uh, Shira Ovide, I hope I'm not butchering that name, uh, appeared in the New York Times uh, on tech newsletter, which mm-hmm. I highly uh, recommend you subscribe to if you don't. And, and she states, you know, YouTube has long been the most popular music service. And you and I say that all the time. It's not Spotify. It's not Apple Music. The number one music listenings, it's, it's YouTube by a mile, right? Yep. So it says, you know, what's changed is that YouTube isn't the Darth Vader of the music industry anymore. Um, and, and why was that? Because, you know, low payouts, you know, people have complained that, you know, the the platform, you know, which is owned by Google, didn't generate enough money for them and didn't do enough to stop ripoffs. And it says, you know, those grievances haven't gone away entirely, but they've mostly gone quiet. The big reason is that YouTube figure out a way to generate enough cash to make people in the music world happy or at least content for now. Right. I mean, I think that is one of the points of the article, which is, yeah, it, it, they're not necessarily the villain, but it's, it's, it, it could go back to that. <laughs> it's somewhat of a tenuous thing. Um, you know, and they, so of course, and we mentioned this last week with, with the Lee or Cohen, uh, yes. you know, conversation about this, you know, they paid out more than $4 billion last That's year. That's not nothing. That's not nothing. And yeah. it says the significance of YouTube's dollar figure is that it's not far from the $5 billion that the streaming king Spotify pays to music industry participants mm-hmm. from a portion of its subscriptions. Uh, but she has some funny little, it says, a reminder, the industry mostly loves Spotify's money, but some musicians say that they're shortchanged by the payouts. Understatement of the year. Uh, yes, there are some people that are a little bit disappointed in that, to say the least. But again, YouTube is kind of, you know, they have, uh, they've done a good job, actually, of, of uh, you know, stepping up and communicating that what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but it also, as, as she mentions, uh, the YouTube turnaround may also show that complaining works. The music industry has a fairly successful track record of picking a public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. Pandora for a while, Spotify, YouTube, and more recently apps like TikTok and Twitch. And public and publicly browbeating it <laughs> or playing one rich company against another to get more money or something else they wanted. So that, of course, it is, is a, a fair point to make that, you know, there's been a lot of... I love the word browbeating um, mm-hmm. uh, by the by the labels, and so you know it it, it causes I suppose people to kind of it's, it's the squeaky wheel gets the gets the lubrication. So that's that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. You know they make their money um, primarily uh, from advertising. Yes, and they do. And you know you and I talk about this so often, but it bears repeating. You know when people complain about. Uh, small payouts for streaming. You know, a stream isn't worth a download. A download isn't worth a CD. A CD mm-hmm. isn't worth a vinyl album. There are different value propositions here. And and I would only remind our listeners that the streaming services pay the rights holders, not the artists. And it's really about the agreement that you have with that rights holder, that label. Are you fully recouped? Are there multiple co-rights? What is that Uh, situation are you taking a huge advance you know there is money being made from streaming Mm -hmm. um would i like it to be more uh absolutely but uh i love the fact that youtube is at least going to the industry going through the press and saying look you know we're not the bad guy spotify paid you guys you know five billion in the last year we paid over four billion 
So, you know, we're, we're trying to do some things here now. Can they tighten up, you know, uh, you know, their content ID system to identify, you know, the music it's, it's a pretty great system, but there have been complaints that there's piracy and, you know, people are gaming the system, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think we have to give credit where credit is due. I think it's, you know, probably because Lear Cohen went from, you know, running a successful label to going to YouTube and he knows how to speak that language and he knows how to monetize. Well, and he knows how to market. And so he's marketing and creating a spin himself and doing a good job and bringing up the point that, yeah, that's $4 billion is, is nothing to sneeze at. And oftentimes it's presentation and, you know, communicating what you're doing and, and yeah, all of that yeah. stuff is fi- factoring into this. So, yeah. so interesting, 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 interesting. All right, how about this one? This was a, again, a really great article. This out of Variety. Uh, now that you've bought a multi-million dollar music catalog, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. And, um, you know, we've, of course, been talking a lot about the acquisitions. And now here it is, you know, talking about some of the, the, the sort of... Um, uh, strategic plans to basically start making their money back, and it's yeah. fascinating. And yeah. and one of the th- there's a couple of really interesting points in here. And you know, you and I both work in the label system, which is not in this respect not too dissimilar to the publishing business. Which is, you know, you've got these giant catalogs, you've got all these releases. Um, you know, how do you prioritize those, and how do you market those, and uh, they mentioned uh, he, they actually attached uh, headcount to mm-hmm. to yes. the number of of copyrights in this, and I'm going to try to find. Yeah, and that's uh, while you do that, that's kind of the first that I've seen this. I, I was talking to my business partner Jeff Mosco this morning about this. This is the first time we've actually kind of looked under the hood to see. You know, I believe uh, was it um, Primary Wave said they had 15 digital strategy people working on this, but you have to know that if you're going to acquire uh, these catalogs, that you're yes, it's a math equation, and you're mm-hmm. going to look at how streaming is going to perform, but you want to exploit this, and I mean that in the best possible way. You want to monetize this. Yeah. This is a business, and by the way, this piece in Variety was written by Jim Oswad. Um, and Jem has written so many fantastic pieces, but to kind of preface this while you're looking at that number yeah. o- over the past few months, remember Bob Dylan sold his catalog to universal for somewhere between 300, 400 million. Neil Young sold half of his to hypnosis for a hundred million. Stevie Nicks sold, you know, a good portion of hers along with other intellectual property to primary way for a hundred million dollars. So this has really become kind of a feeding frenzy gold rush. Right. And so here's the, here's the thing I was, I was looking for. So this is from Merck. Merck, how do you pronounce his last Mercuriatus. name? Mercuriatus. Mercuriatus. I, I look at it and I, I, I just Just say Merck. There you go. Merck. Uh, he says, I believe that proper song management requires 500 to 1,000 songs per person. This is per employee. 
not 20,000 like the major. So he's talking about kind of how these new companies are able to maximize these purchases. He said, we're about halfway to where I want to be. And ideally, in a couple of years, we'll have 150,000 songs and around 250 employees looking after them. And that's the ceiling. He's saying that's the, that's the, 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 the total amount that he wants to bring into his, his fund. And he said he points to a, his company's work with the late songwriter musician Al Jackson's catalog. So Al Jackson co-wrote a lot of the great Booker T, uh, a lot of Booker T and MG stuff, a lot, especially the Al Green stuff. Mm. And it says, which is raised, uh, which they have raised from $400,000 to $600,000 in annual income in just two years. When we bought this catalog, it was earning reliable income, but 82% of that income was concentrated on just one song. That's the... One of my all-time favorite songs, Al Green's Let's Stay Together. What a great song. Classic. All of the others have been, had been allowed to languish to the point where they were doing virtually nothing. In the period of time we've owned it, Let's Stay Together has gone from 82% of the earnings to less than 50%. Um, and then they point out that that if you know the, the instrumental song Green Onions from Booker T and the MG, sure. it's been in 10 different movies in the past 12 months. And uh, Al Green's Call Me and Still in Love with You in films and commercials. Uh, and of course, John Lennon had in, interpolated, uh, inter, yeah, interpolating, they were, he's interpolating, can't even say That's that word. for you to say. First it's Merck's last name and now I it's know. interpolating. It's morning. Uh, still in Love with You into a new song for his last album. So... Basically, you know, this is kind of how they're working, but it's yeah. I've never seen that number a, a, attached to headcount of people in a building, which is fascinating. Yeah, and, but it's and, a realistic thing you have yeah. to con contemplate when you're buying these catalogs. Yeah, and and Larry Mestel is is talking about some of the same things, you know, for Primary Wave, but he said something that you know kind of set some people off, you know. Um, as you talk about his, you know, uh, recent catalogs from Red Hot Chili Peppers, Barry Manilow, Fleetwood Max, uh, Lindsey Buckingham, Motley Crue's Nikki Six, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it, they stated uh, that dedication to upend the traditional music publishing model um, with more hands-on approach, it, uh, Primary Wave calls song management a description that makes many established publish publishers apoplectic, quote, isn't that exactly what we've done for decades? Unquote. One says, so they're saying, you know, like we're going to actually work this catalog and the music publishers are going, uh, brother, uh, please. Yeah. This is a decades old business and we've been doing that very same thing. But right. of course they, they do have a giant catalog and you could make the case that sometimes they might have too big of a catalog to effectively, you know, promote it and market it and, and monetize it. So, you know, but I, you know, and I and I still think back to, um, you know, it's, it's like real estate at the moment. One of the reasons that these these funds are spending such big money is because money is cheap right now. Interest rates are so low, and the 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 cost of borrowing money is so low that it's inflating the prices of things, including catalogs. So. Will that change over time? Will, will, will these giant numbers we're seeing for acquisitions change as money, perhaps, as interest rates go up a little bit? I don't know. I assume it will a wee bit. Um, yeah. But it's again, the, 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 the most interesting thing about this article is it talks about kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the way that they look at these acquisitions and factor in 
how they're going to monetize it and how it relates to headcount and basically how many, you know, right. song titles per employee right. is the right number. And that's something we missed in these yeah. previous articles. They just talk about the acquisition, sure. not what you're going to do once you've got it. You know, uh, Primary Waves, uh, Larry Mistel said, you know, we're always working in conjunction with the artist or their estate. We're creating a marketing plan that they sign off on and then we go get it. So... I think that's really important. We haven't really been reading about that at all. Mm-mm. No, absolutely. So that's a really interesting article. And and again, it kind of fills in some of the missing pieces that we were all thinking when you're seeing these staggering numbers being paid out. It's like, what the hell are they going to do with this? And again, yeah. you know, that's, and, and so much of it is, is hinged on film and TV. And, you know, when, when we first started in, in the business, you know, and started working for major labels, you know, there were always that, there was the film and TV department, but, yeah. you know, they were kind of off to the side and yeah. it was exactly unclear what they were doing. And I mean, you knew what they were doing, but mm-hmm. I, I don't remember a giant push initially uh, incorporating those into the marketing plans. It was a nice thing, That's but it right. wasn't something that was internally right. marketed and internally really worked with. Yeah, um, there were separate entities. I remember when I was at Universal, I did meet some of the Universal publishing people, but we didn't really interact yeah. a lot outside of friendships and maybe going to lunch and things like that. And there's been a lot of finger pointing lately, especially at Merck and and hypnosis saying well you're playing paying too high of multiples and there's a bubble it's going to burst but merck said you know you haven't said this word but a lot of people have there's no bubble here a bubble is when somebody is overpaying for something that doesn't have the sort of metrics that these investments have and i think you're going to see that even more people are going to be coming into this space on the back of our success I believe this is only scratching the service, he concludes. I'm not focused on short-term thinking. We're in it for the long haul. Right, right, right. Well, and, but there is also, there's kind of a, 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 a thing in here, a, a brief mention kind of of people in the established industry saying, you know, well, these are kind of the suits coming in and bankers coming mm-hmm. in. And they don't really, are, aren't used to working with artists. And I know some of the heads of these companies are, have, experience in the industry. But I think it's an interesting point to make given um, how the entire AT&T and Warner Brothers thing has devolved into now they're they're moving that entire content thing off to a new um, a new partner with Discovery. So in the end, they couldn't handle that that particular the suits at AT AT&T perhaps couldn't really handle the I hear you. They, they, they didn't understand the nuances yeah. and the relationship importance and all that stuff. Yeah, so I have a little bit different view on that. Go ahead, um, go ahead. Sure. I, I do hear what you're saying and I do uh, recognize those complaints, but Merck is a music guy. Oh, absolutely. No, right? I'm, not, I'm and not speaking to him refer- specifically. I know. Oh, yeah. No, I know. Um, Merck is a music guy. Uh, I worked for him at Sanctuary Records. Mm-hmm. Um, he was Elton John's manager, Guns yep. N' Roses. And then also, you know, Primary Wave. Those are music people. Absolutely. Those are not bankers. And I'm not saying yeah. you're saying that, but for those who do complain here, you know, BMG, you know, um, Primary Wave, Merck and Hypnosis, at least those, those are solid music people. Right. But as you bring in the big finance partners, that potentially has... Uh, uh, could there could be friction there? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. 
All right. How about the last one, Jay? We've and we've been talking about SoundScan a lot lately. We this have. is from Billboard, and this is a really wonderful historical. I can't believe it's been thirty years. Let's start with that. I know. Wherever the years gone, uh, you know, we were both in the business when SoundScan. I hit. was working at Tower Records when it hit, and I'll tell That's you, right. the shit hit the fan. Right, exactly. So the article is how sounds uh, how SoundScan changed music, driving metal, rap, and alt rock up the charts. And uh, yeah, thirty years ago, spring of nineteen ninety one was when SoundScan well. was was. So so when you were you were in the trenches at at Tower, yeah. What was it? What was it? What was the view? Was it like? Because I mean, first of all, you know, in 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 an era when we all have powerful computers and smartphones and all that stuff, it's hard to forget, it's hard to remember that the, the the technological side of SoundScan was was a heavy lift. Oh my gosh. Getting some it's sort like of scanners, right? In in each and every retail store, yeah. an insane proposition at the time. Yeah, it, it was, and I remember when it launched, and we were. We were prepared for it, but you have to remember that before SoundScan, which is now called MRC Data, before SoundScan started, we compiled our charts basically on the honor system. So right. I, I was the singles buyer. Uh, my boss, uh, Tim Kretzinger, God rest his soul, was uh, reporting on the album side. And once a week, we would get on the phone and we would read off our t- top 50 on the album side and on the on the single side. Right. But w- now I can tell you that we put those charts together accurately and we kept tabs on everything and those were honest. But not every store was. And right. the way that it worked back then is you would start uh, with a release and you did not want to be, you know, top five first week. You wanted to slowly grow. So first week the record companies would call up the store and say, you know, we're going for ads this week or we're going for top 50 this week. Oh, but this song, we're going for top five this week. We're going for, right? So yeah, they're, right. they're just telling you that's what they want to see. And there were things that were sent to people, gifts that were sent to people. Um, so it was really kind of a CD kind of business. But then when sound can, sound scan started, and that's what this article talks about, you know, uh, one uh, one art one band in particular, the Triplets, whose music just fell off the chart when sound scan started. But this is this is what happened was it started to reflect what was really being sold, you right. know. Like somebody told me that if if the New York Times book you know, bestsellers list was accurate. Like the Bible would be number one, you know, right. not the new yes. John Grisham novel. So right. that it really shocked the industry when number one, they found out that country sold, which yeah. it really went underreported. Yep. They, they found out that songs were debuting at number one, because up until that time there were only a handful, you could count them on one hand, how many albums debuted at number one. Yeah. And That's now right. all of a sudden it was a regular occurrence um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, as the article points out, it says, when the data came in, the biggest surprise was how well older albums continued to sell. For years, retailers and one-stop distributors had omitted catalog albums when they sent ranked sales lists to Billboard. SoundScan didn't, though. So Billboard, they had to create a new chart, the top pop catalog albums, which debuted uh, May 25th of 1991, topped by Best of the Righteous Brothers, Steve Miller's Greatest Hits, 
and to the surprise of several Billboard writers, Meatloaf's Bad Outta Hell. If the catalog albums were included in the top pop albums charts, all 50 would show up on the 200 position chart, this person wrote. Yeah. Uh, the Righteous Brothers would have shown up at number 43, Steve Miller Band would have been top 50, and Meatloaf would have ranked in the low 60s. So basically, of course, and if you were working retail, you knew. Mm-hmm. Ev- those things were, were always cataloged. Patsy Klein's greatest hits. Exactly. I mean, there were, there were these albums that we could not keep in stock that were right. catalog. You know, the top pop albums chart, you know, from May 25th, 91, um, it didn't include catalog, as you just mentioned. You know, it was topped by Michael Bolton. Um, the week's highest debut was Huey Lewis in the News, debuting at 27, notably high for a first week position and a sign of things to come. Right, exactly. They also mentioned uh, uh, the Garth Brooks album No Fences. It yes. had no pop crossover hits, that, and and it there it was though at number four. <laughs> so it was like, whoa. Uh, but then, I, as they said, the real firestorm though came from over recent releases that fell fast. Yes. So all of a sudden, there were records that were kind of had a buzz to them, but boom, they 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 weren't they weren't being they weren't truly selling, and then boom, they were off the charts and right. then that freaked a lot of people oh my out. gosh we were getting calls from record labels like um why why isn't my artist in your top 10 this week right because it was last week right well yeah. now SoundScan is actually yeah. you know so you know they say that the the most immediately visible gains uh, were from metal bands you yeah. know in june of 1991 uh, the chart featured the first number one debut of the SoundScan era, Skid Row's second album, Slave to the Grind, which built on the momentum from the band's opening slot in a Guns N' Roses tour. You know, a week later, Van Halen's For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge bumped Skid Row to number two. You know, it was the first time two hard rock albums had occupied the one and two positions in three years. Van Halen's album stayed number one for three weeks. So, and they go on to talk about Metallica, you know, uh, but that's the thing. Before uh, SoundScan came around, Catalog was underreported. Country was underreported. Metal and rock was underreported. So now we started to see what was really happening. And it, it was shocking to the industry. Well, and then they, they mentioned an, ND, an NWA album, and it, not only was it a rap album that was on the charts, but it was a rap label for an indep- it was a rap album on an independent label. So you have hip hop independent labels all being much better represented and and truly showing what they were selling, and they were selling like gangbusters, no pun intended. So yeah, yeah, there you go. So fa- you know, it, it's it was a trip down memory lane, to be honest, mm-hmm. and. Um, and fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And and you know they mentioned that that you know when you talk in, in 1991 when you talk about putting scanners and all of these things in a retail outlet, a lot of retail stores didn't have computers. No, it's easy today. Everybody's it's got easy computers today. in yes, their stores. Exactly. But boy, to have done it back then, it was a heavy lift, and it's a real testament to the company then called SoundScan that they were able to pull it off. And and it was bumpy at the beginning. I also remember that. And yeah. um, but boy, they they got it happening, and and it seems like such a funny system that existed before it. Um, yeah, and it's not perfect now. They don't have these no. things in every retailer, nope. and and certain indie retailers are weighted. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe if they sell, sell 10 units, it counts as, you know, 100 or whatever. There are certain ones that they do that with to make it uh, mathematically, you know, possible to do this. So it's not perfect, but it is so much better than it was before. Yeah. Yeah. There's no going back. There's no going back. And, no. and again, in a, and we talk about data and you are a self-confessed data, data nerd. Yes. Um, there just was so little true data then so little. And of course the other thing that went hand in hand with this was BDS and, you know, and, and radio play was kind of the same reporting shenanigans that, that basically retail reporting was, and that changed around the same time. Yeah. And that was huge. Just, and we hadn't really even talked about that. I'm glad you brought that up. BDS stands for broadcast data systems. And they were kind of the sound scan for radio. Absolutely. And you could see that, you know, you're getting a lot of spins, but maybe they're happening in overnight uh, yeah. where there's less of an audience or or whatever. We learned so much more about our business. I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was at, at Giant Records at that point. That was Irving Azoff's label. And that was a very promotion-dominated company. And yeah, you it, it was getting uncomfortable when, when that switch happened. So... Um, yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. You know, the Wayback Machine, Jay. Yeah. We went in the wow. Wayback Machine. Great stories so, this week. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, we do need to wrap it up. Can you believe it? So uh, big thanks to our good friends over at Bands in Town and Hypebot. Thank you. And uh, Jay, always a pleasure to see you. We actually got, got together in person last yeah. week, which was a blast. And yeah. so, uh, again, feeling like it's... And I see your shirt, Vaxxed AF, man. <laughs> if you don't know what AF means, well, look it up. You can probably okay. figure it out. So on that note, thanks for lending us your ears, everybody. We sure we appreciate, appreciate you tuning into us. And uh, we're going to be back next week. So have a great week. And for Jay and Mike, thanks for listening. This has been episode number 44 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know. <laughs>